Welcome to the Bloody Bible, the podcast where we explore why our fascination with crime is as old as the Bible itself. I'm Em. And I'm Kaz. And in this episode, we'll be talking about some really intriguing and quite unusual examples of biblical violence, because our focus today is on biblical women who kill. So Em, can you think of any killer women in the Bible? Yeah, I can think of a few, actually. There's the story of the unnamed woman of Thebes in the book of Judges, I think it's Judges 9, who kills Abimelech, who was Israel's leader at the time. It's not a particularly well-known story, but she kills Abimelech by dropping a millstone on his head from the upper window of a tower. Ouch. (laughs) That would have hurt. Right? So there's that. And of course, there's Yael, also in the book of Judges, chapters four and five, who more famously murdered the army general Sisera while he was sleeping by hammering a tent peg through his head. Pretty gruesome, but also, I don't know, a little bit badass as well. Oh yeah, Yael is totally badass. Yeah. And the other woman I can think of is Judith from the book of Judith. And again, I'm not sure her story is particularly well known either. She killed Holofernes, the Assyrian army general, by chopping off his head. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, they are all pretty grisly murders, aren't they? Mm, they are. But these stories about killer women are so fascinating. And I think that's because female violence is just so unusual. We're used to reading about biblical men killing other men or killing women sometimes. But we don't expect to read about women who kill. So when it happens... It's really intriguing. Yes, and it's exactly the same today too, right? Women are accused of murder far less often than men, but when they are, their stories often get huge amounts of media attention, sometimes even more than the most notorious male serial killers. Women have been accused of murder like Lizzie Borden, Belle Gunness, Mira Hindley, Eileen Warnos, Rose West and Amanda Knox have all become so infamous whether or not they were actually convicted of the murders they were accused of. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, why why do you think we have such a fascination with women who kill? I think a lot about this. And I think it's I think it has to do with how we typically understand gender roles and relationships. Mm. Violence is something we associate with masculinity, not femininity. So when men kill, it almost comes as no surprise because masculinity is typically associated with violence and aggression. Mm -hmm. Men who kill might be understood as taking their innate violent masculinity too far or to an extreme, but it's not viewed as abnormal because, rightly or wrongly, it's considered such an intrinsic part of what it means to be a man. Yeah. But when women kill... It's seen as so unusual because it goes against those things we often associate with femininity, like gentleness, passivity, nurturing and caring. Women are expected to be the victims, not the victimizers. And women are expected to give life and nurture life, not end it. So when women do kill, it's particularly shocking. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I I think that these sort of traditional ideals of femininity also explain a very common reaction to women who kill because, you know, we're fascinated by them. 
but we're also a little bit terrified by them too mm. because they're they're so unusual and they breach these gender norms that we're just used to being surrounded by and that can make us feel very unsettled yes yeah and i i was reading up on some feminist criminologists who've written about women who kill and and they say that these women are often viewed and understood in different ways to male killers both the legal system and the media make sense of women's violence, not just by focusing on their violence, but by focusing on them as women. And a, a very common way of talking about or viewing women who kill, you know, they're, they're often described as either mad or bad or sad. And they're always judged for their feminine failures as much as they are for their violent crimes. It's like a woman who kills is put on trial for being doubly deviant. Mm, oh, yeah. She's broken the law by killing someone, but she's also broken social rules and norms by subverting feminine gender ideals. So she's seen as highly unnatural, not a proper woman. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I, I always think there's a strange paradox in the way that society understands and talks about women who kill because you know on the one hand as you said they're seen as deviant and not behaving like proper women but on the other hand women are also understood or believed to have this innate capacity for malevolence and evil yeah. like they're sort of hidden within them that any woman can act out with violence and and so it's really confusing because as women we, we can't win can we <laughs> We're expected to conform to these completely unattainable and unrealistic ideals. You know, we're meant to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the chaste and passive and nurturing virginal women all at the same time. But we're also suspected of secretly being devious and manipulative and capable of doing the most horrendous things. We just can't win, right? <laughs> no, we can't win. No, we're one. Of, we're, we're either trying to, to conform to this ridiculous ideal or... We're going to fail as a woman anyway. We're, we're so dangerous. So, yeah, in a nutshell, when women are violent, they're understood to be breaching traditional ideals of femininity, but they're also confirming society's worst fears about women's real wickedness. I read an article, really good article, by political science professor Renée Herbelé, and she puts it really well when she says that women who kill cause so much social anxiety and fascination because they embody, and these are her words, the worst of contemporary nightmares about women's potential for disorderliness. Yeah, that's so interesting, hey? And I think I think it gives society the, the perfect excuse to police and control women's bodies and their behaviour to ensure that they stay within the boundaries of acceptable, in scare quotes, <laughs> femininity for everyone's safety yeah that's right and it, it's like women are so dangerous um and so everyone's perfectly entitled to police and control them because you know what kind of world would we live in if we let women do exactly what they wanted <laughs> <laughs> where would we be <laughs> Okay, so in this episode, um, I'm going to focus on the biblical character of Judith, because I, I think she's so fascinating for so many reasons. She commits this really gruesome murder. And on the one hand, she seems to embody those ideals of femininity that we've mentioned already. She's pious and chaste. But 
On the other hand, she acts like a typical femme fatale. She uses her sexuality as a weapon to murder her victim. Mm. So on the one hand, you know, Judith may be hailed as a hero in the biblical text, but I think her story may also leave readers with a few nightmares about women's potential for deadly violence. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with the book of Judith. So if you're looking for it, um, you'll find it in the Old Testament in some Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Bibles. But in other Christian Bibles, it's either left out entirely or it's included in the section called the Apocrypha, which um, are the books that essentially didn't make their way into every version of the Old Testament. But what I'll do, I'll put a link in our show notes where you can find the book of Judith online and read it for yourselves. Mm. Now, it is quite a long story. It's quite a complicated story. But could you give us a, a quick plot summary, Em? Sure. Uh, the story centers on Judith, a pious and beautiful Jewish widow whose hometown of Bethulia is threatened by the Assyrian army, which is led by their fearsome general Holofernes. Now, the people of Bethulia are in despair. Uh, they want to surrender to the terrifying Assyrian army. But Judith refuses to let them and tells them that they must trust in God to deliver them. So she basically tells them to leave things up to her. Yeah. <laughs> so she takes one of her maids and they make their way to the camp of Holofernes using her most feminine charms, her feminine wiles, <laughs> she tricks him into believing that she wants to help him capture Bethulia. Holofernes is totally smitten by Judith's beauty and decides he's going to have sex with her. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. Yeah. Things change quickly there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. No. Um, <laughs> So when Judith is invited into his tent, she dolls herself up and waits until he has collapsed drunk on his bed before she picks up his sword and cuts off his head. Oh, okay. Yeah, another twist. <laughs> <laughs> she then takes the severed head back to Bethulia, and once the Assyrian army learn that their general is dead, they run away and Judith's community is saved. And the story then ends with her returning to her previous life as a chaste and pious widow, which is maybe a slightly strange and even anticlimactic ending. Yeah, it is. It, it really is. A bit disappointing, to be honest. I was expecting something a bit more, I don't know, uh, Judas ending up becoming the leader of the town or, you know, taking over as ruler of the Israelites. I don't know. I was looking for something else. Yeah, and she just kind of fades into the background again. Yeah, she does. She just disappears. So let's think about Judith in terms of her performance as a murderous woman. If she was appearing in court today, tried with the murder of Holofernes, what kind of reception do you think she'd get, both in the court and also in the media? Oh, this is such a good question. Mm. I think she might get a bit of a mixed reception. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Her defense team, though, would certainly emphasize all the ways that she fits the stereotype of perfect femininity. Like, she's a chaste widow. Mm. She's fulfilling the feminine role of being a good wife in a monogamous heterosexual relationship. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I'll grant her that. But I don't know. I mean, her first husband did die. True. Uh, yeah, and for yeah. me, that is a bit of a red flag. <laughs> I just keep thinking, as you read the story, you know, men seem to die when Judith is around, which makes me suspicious. And the text doesn't talk much about her husband. Um, but I was wondering, what if she plotted and planned her husband's death? Ooh, what if that's yeah. why she's a widow? Yeah. What if she fits that really popular archetype of the black widow killer, the alluring, seductive woman who murders her partners for financial gain? I mean, the text does say that she's extremely beautiful and that her husband had left her a very wealthy woman. Mm. You know, she kind of reminds me a bit of the very notorious killer, Belle Guinness, who was the, the so-called black widow killer believed to have killed at least 14 people and probably many more. And she killed them all between 1884 and 1908. Now, most of her victims were men that she enticed to visit her farm in Indiana with the prospect of marrying her. But what she did instead, when they got there, she killed them and stole their money. Now, I don't know, a woman on a farm men getting killed <laughs> that, that that really reminds me of judith doesn't it yes i think you've been listening to way too many true crime podcasts i probably have but uh yeah i can't help myself <laughs> i don't think we can blame poor judith for her husband's demise yeah okay <laughs> i'll give you i'll give you that <laughs> it's not in the text no, it's not. But what we are told in the text is that she lived a really quiet and pious life after her husband's death. So she wasn't out chasing after other men or spending his money. Mm, fair enough. Right? Like the text tells us that she dressed herself in sackcloth and widow's clothing and she fasted all the time um, except on Jewish holy days. The text suggests that she's taking her mourning very seriously. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's also really pious. Like we're told that she feared the Lord very much and there was no one who spoke an ill word about her. So she's chaste, she's devout, she's frugal, she's very respectable. So in all of those senses, she's the perfect biblical woman. Yeah, I, I grant you that, but doesn't she sound a little bit too perfect? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I would bet that if she was on trial for Holofernes' murder, I'll bet the prosecution in the trial would suggest that it was all a pretense. I mean, haven't we heard stories about women killers who play the role of the perfect wife or the perfect mother or the perfect woman? I mean, you, you have to admit that later in the story, we learn that Judith is very good at putting on an act to deceive her potential victim. So couldn't this chaste, holy, pious widow be an act as well yeah yep yep that's that's true okay okay so maybe we could compare her to someone like pam huck oh yeah yeah she was convicted of murdering lewis gumpenberger she was also charged with the murder of betsy faria and she's been investigated in connection with the death of her own mother shirley newman Mm. who mysteriously fell to her death from the balcony of her apartment yeah very mysteriously yeah so Pam Hupp was certainly very good at putting on an act and claiming innocence. In fact, during her premeditated murder of Lewis Gumpenberger, she 
called the police claiming that he was in fact a burglar oh that's right yeah yeah and then after she'd shot him five times she voluntarily went down to the police station to give a statement claiming she had been the victim of a home invasion and had shot Gumpenberger in self-defense yeah yeah that's such a good example I mean Pam Hop is such a piece of work yeah and, and she, yeah, she she leaves people with with no real sense of who she actually is. She was playing these roles mm, too. Yeah. You know, I wonder if the authors of the Book of Judith wanted to leave the readers with a little bit of doubt in their minds about her motives and her character. I mean, on on the one hand, she is, as you say, she's portrayed as this perfect example of ideal femininity, but on the other hand. There's the you know the, the ghost of the dead husband mm. lurking in the background. She's no longer a wife. She didn't remarry. She's not a mother. And these are two very idealized social roles for women, both in the biblical period and, and still today. And and the other thing, probably the most important thing, don't we have to keep in mind what happens later in this story? That sort of <laughs> that minor issue of her beheading fall off her knees? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> If Judith was in court for this murder, I wonder if the prosecution would create a narrative where she's this manipulative, deceitful femme fatale who lured poor old Holofernes to his death by using her sexuality as a weapon. Mm, mm -hmm. I mean, it's something we've seen in other true crime cases, right? Where women's sexuality is associated with or even blamed for their violence. Oh, totally. I think that's so common. And, you know, I was thinking of the, the perfect example of that is the case of Amanda Knox who was, uh, she was convicted for the murder of British student Meredith Kircher back in 2007. Yeah. And, you know, Amanda was later acquitted for the murder, but during her trial, I don't know if you've watched the Netflix documentary um, about it, it's, it's quite astonishing. I mean, she was portrayed by both the prosecution and the media as this sort of sex-crazed femme fatale mm. who'd used her sexual allure to orchestrate Meredith's murder during what was referred to by the press and the prosecution as a, a, an orgy gone wrong. And I've put That's that right. in scare quotes or a sex game gone wrong. Yeah. And there was absolutely no evidence for this at all. But the, the courts and the media bought it because, and I think, I think it's a lot to do with the, the fact that it, it confirmed that age-old narrative that you know women's violence is the result of their deviant and dangerous sexuality. Mm. So we have Amanda Knox, who's this fresh-faced and a pretty naive American exchange student, becoming recast as some sort of sex-obsessed she-devil. And she was actually called La Luciferina in the press. Yeah which means, you know, a devil with the face of an angel, uh, a woman with a dark demonic side. And as I said, there was absolutely no evidence for that. She just became recast because of these popular ideas about women's dangerousness. But it's it's interesting because that, that idea of women having a dark side or, or having sort of different faces reminds me of Judith in the way that she seems to be performing so many different roles. You know, she's, as we've said already she's a chaste and pious widow she's a dangerous femme fatale and as we'll see she does a number of things that we typically associate with biblical masculinity rather than femininity yeah you know she's involved in political intrigue with the leaders of her town she gets in, engaged in military conflict and she's a cold-blooded murderer at the yeah, end of yeah. the day <laughs> so it, it's so hard to see who the real judith is 
you can never quite pin her down. There's such an interesting point. And something I noticed near the beginning of her story, like on one hand, Judith is this pious widow, but then she doesn't hesitate to jump into action when she hears the leaders of Bethulia are planning to surrender to the Assyrian army. Mm, that's true. She sends for the leaders and lectures them about their lack of faith in God. You know, why are they surrendering when they should be praying to God for help? She seems really comfortable in the company of prominent men. She's she's not afraid to speak her mind to them about religious or political matters. She's kind of in her element. She's taking charge of the situation. And that's not typical behavior for biblical women. No, absolutely not. That's that's really true. And you know, the, the other unusual thing is that these leaders of Bethulia listen to her mm. and they accept her advice. Yeah. I mean, she she basically tells them what's going to happen. It's like, I'm going to leave the city with my maid and I'm not going to tell you where I'm going or what I've got planned. Just leave it all to me. Yeah. And the, the leaders just completely accept that. They they obviously trust her completely to get the job done. Exactly. And this that would really strengthen the case of the defence, wouldn't it? Oh. Like having the approval of male authority figures. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've seen so many occasions in real life of just how influential it is to have the support of powerful men when you're facing criminal charges yourself. Oh, yeah, definitely. So like Jeffrey Epstein, for example, rubbed shoulders with the very rich and famous, Mm. which in turn gave him an air of credibility. Like for a long time, his friends in high places ensured that he was almost above suspicion, or at least people turned a blind eye when in fact he was involved in horrific criminal activity, Mm. including sexual abuse of children and, and sex trafficking of minors. Now, obviously, these associations with the wealthy and influential elite only got him so far, but his offending was hidden in plain sight for many, many years, thanks in part to these relationships with male authority figures. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jeff, that's such a good example, Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, that kind of sort of relying on the power of his male friends just to, yeah, to, to keep him out of sight, yeah. if you like, keep his crimes out of sight. I'm thinking thinking back to Judith, I, I wonder if her behaviour here might also raise some red flags. You know, the fact that she does seem to have this power and authority over the male leaders of her town. I mean, do you think readers might be suspicious that she's being too unfeminine or being too masculine or kind of stepping out of line? And do you think that they might consider her authority over the town leaders to be kind of dangerous or abnormal in some way? Yeah, that's such a good point, because I don't think the text itself suggests that she's claiming an inappropriate or unfeminine agency. No. But I do think that as readers who have internalized patriarchal norms and ideals, we might feel suspicion at the power this woman assumes. Like, who is this woman who speaks so extensively and with such authority? Yeah. Or what right does she have to claim that kind of power over men. Yeah. Now, we wouldn't ask those questions of a male character, right? No, no way. But it's an almost reflexive response for us as readers because we've internalized such strong ideas about acceptable behavior for men and for women. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so true. And um, yeah, we'll see as we we'll, we'll carry on with the story and look at the, all the ways that, that Judith is kind of pushing back against what's considered acceptable behavior for women. 
So we'll follow her. She leaves Bethulia and heads towards the camp of Holofernes. Um, but before she leaves, she says a very, very long prayer to God, yeah. asking for God's support in her mission. So we're getting that idea that, you know, she is very pious. It's almost like everything that's going to happen in the, in the imminent future is kind of directed by God. Yeah. And then before she leaves, we're told that she took off her mourning clothes. Um, she bathed and titivated herself with ointments and perfumes. She styled her hair. She put on her best dress that she used to wear when she was married and adorned herself with lots of jewellery from, you know, from head to toe. Mm. And so the text tells us, um, it said she made herself very beautiful to entice the eyes of all the men who might see her. Ah, so she's she's trying <laughs> to entice the Assyrian yes. men with her sexual allure. Oh, yeah. Now, that could be seen as a bit suspicious. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she sounds like a femme fatale here. I'm sure the prosecution would argue that this suggests intent, right? Yeah. She was planning to seduce Holofernes and kill him right from the start. Yeah, I would agree with you about that issue of intent. But then the defence could argue that she is doing it for sort of pure and holy motives. You know, she's just prayed to God for help in her mission to save her people. And I think it's really interesting that we're given this suggestion that this beautiful and alluring Judith is not really who she is. Mm. It's it's kind of just an act. Yeah. You know, she's taking off one costume, her, her widow's dress, and she's putting on another one almost as a disguise mm. and she reminds me of a spy or, or like an assassin here actually someone very like that the most wonderful villanelle the assassin in the tv drama killing eve because doesn't she put on a sort of disguise whenever she's about to do a hit yes and, and villanelle will often behave and dress in a particular way to attract and entice her victims both male and female and her costumes are absolutely stunning oh, they are. just amazing yeah. right we we both love Philomel yeah. don't we secretly yeah <laughs> not so secretly not so secretly <laughs> but but even Eve herself who was assigned to capture Villanelle and bring her to justice comes under her spell oh yeah she does yeah and I think it's interesting that we're told the dress that Judith puts on to entice Holofernes is the one she used to wear when she was married to her husband. Ah, yeah. There's almost a connection there which raises the question of whether she seduced him too. I mean, could this be another red flag? Yep, I, I think that's a really good point. So, uh, so sorry, Judith, the, the jury's still out. We've not made up our minds yet. So so Judith, after getting dressed up, she and her maid head out and they arrive at the Assyrian camp and she's apprehended by the guards there who ask her what she's doing. And she tells them this, spins them this story that she, she's a humble Hebrew woman um, who's terrified and she's fleeing from her hometown and she wants to give Holofernes some intel about the state of affairs in Bethulia so that he's got a better chance of capturing it. And as I say, this, this is the spin that she's giving here. Um, so she's acting again, acting a role. She's being <laughs> pretty devious, isn't she? I mean, she's engaged in some serious counterintelligence, but it works because we're told that the guards are so taken in by her beauty that they let her go to 
example of Ferenice Tant. She's totally using her sexuality as a weapon here, oh, isn't she? Yeah. yeah. Like it's yeah. the classic femme fatale move. Yeah, definitely. The narrator tells us time and time again that everyone she meets is overwhelmed by her beauty. Mm -hmm. It's as though they're stressing that feminine sexuality is really powerful. Yeah. And we're kind of in awe of her for that. But I wonder if we're also being reminded of just how dangerous a beautiful woman can be. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Because, you know, even the, the men in the camp, they do recognize her dangerous allure because yeah. they were told that they say to each other, you know, oh, we need to make sure that we kill all the Hebrew men in Bethulia and uh, so I presume capture all the Hebrew women for ourselves because, you know, if there is beautiful if they're all as beautiful as judith the men say they'll be able to beguile the whole world <laughs> <laughs> so i mean essentially they're saying that this hebrew woman is absolutely stunning and because of that she's lethally dangerous yeah totally she's beautiful she's irresistible and for that reason she is deadly <laughs> now judith goes to the tent of Olafernese, and when she arrives, he's lounging on this incredibly luxurious bed, mm. and you know it's like silk sheets and jewels and gold, and it's it's portrayed as this absolutely gorgeous bed, <laughs> and yeah, and she comes in and she bows down before him, and honestly, this scene is positively sizzling with sexual tension from the <laughs> outset, and I have to admit, Em, I was starting to get a bit flushed when I was reading it <laughs> it's uh yeah sexual tension aplenty yeah and Holofernes is he's clearly mesmerized by Judith's beauty I mean she's playing this role of the poor terrified woman who's fleeing for her life and he seems to buy it and again I think you know the prosecution in this case could argue that this is clear evidence of Judith's duplicitous character yeah, and of course, beneath that text is the subtext that, mm. that these men just can't help themselves when confronted by a beautiful, apparently vulnerable woman. It's like they have little other choice but to seduce yes. her. Yes, <laughs> what, what else can I do? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's ridiculous. <laughs> so Judith stays in the Assyrian camp for a few days and she kind of keeps herself with her maid. But then... Holofernes makes his move and he gets his servant to invite her for dinner. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, there's, it's left in no doubt that um, he's planning to have sex with her. I mean, he, he admits that to his servant and he says to his servant, um, it would be a disgrace if we let such a woman go without having sex with her. If we do not seduce her, she will laugh at us. <laughs> Like, what? <laughs> yeah. Basically, it would be rude not to have sex with her. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I am suspecting that um, Holofernes has not much of a clue about women. Um, yeah, he's clueless. <laughs> so anyway, the servant does invite Judith to um, Holofernes' tent and she pretends to be delighted by the invitation and we're told that she dresses herself up in her finest clothes and heads off there the text says and i'm reading it out here it says um holofernes heart was ravished with her and his passion was aroused for he had been waiting for an opportunity to seduce her from the day he first saw her like i said he couldn't help himself no he couldn't help himself no it's it's so creepy isn't it it is 
Yeah. And I think at this point in the story, I think maybe for the first time, I'm I'm really starting to feel quite anxious about Judith's safety. Yeah. Because Paula Fernie is behaving like a sexual predator. Yeah. Um, let's just say it. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure the defense could use this to defend Judith's violent actions. Paula Fernie's was a, a complete and utter creep who clearly had rape on his mind. And it's, it's so interesting, his words. You know, he's made up his mind. Yeah. He's going to have sex with her. He's, he's not even factoring in whether or not Judith would consent to this plan. So I'm guessing she could plead self-defense here. Yeah. I mean, he's such a creep, right? Like, yeah. it doesn't matter what Judith wants. He's made up his mind to seduce her, to, to, to rape her, whether she wants him to or not. I'm definitely thinking her lawyer should use the self-defense plea here. Mind you, the prosecution could argue that when Judith does kill Holofernes, she's not in any immediate danger. So maybe mm. the self-defense argument won't convince everyone. Oh, yeah, that, that is true, I guess. Because, you know, as we discover, you know, things don't go to plan for Holofernes. Ooh. I mean, he's he's so enchanted by Judith that and her and her, her absolute beauty that um Apparently, he does. He drinks more wine than he's ever drunk before, and <laughs> becomes seriously intoxicated and passes out on his bed. and And that is the moment when Judith strikes. Mm. Uh, she takes down his sword, his own sword, and she makes a quick prayer to God, asking for strength. And then the text says she struck Holofernes' neck twice with all her might and cut off his head. It's so interesting in terms of Judith's gender performance here. Mm -hmm. She's wielding a warrior's sword. She's acting out a warrior's violence by beheading her enemy. And she has this incredible God-given strength. These are all things that we associate with male warriors and masculinity. But this beautiful and pious woman is acting out these roles with with kind of deadly efficiency. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not sure whether I'm I'm impressed by her or, or utterly terrified of <laughs> yeah. her. Yeah, I, or maybe maybe a bit of both. I I mean I agree. Judith is such a sort of transgressive female figure, and she's such a good example of the the murderous femme fatale because you know she uses her sexual allure to maximum effect in order to destroy an incredibly powerful man. But it's it's not for personal gain. It's not for pleasure in committing violence. And, and these are often the sort of classic motives we associate with femme fatales. Mm. But, you know, we, we keep getting reminded here that Judith has a higher purpose, like a holy purpose, yeah. that she's, she's working with God to save her townsfolk from the enemy. And that sort of piety, Judas' piety, kind of jars with how we typically think of the femme fatale. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing is that she's also pretty brazen and upfront about the methods she used to kill Holofernes, which I think is super interesting. She doesn't hide the way that she killed him from the people of Bethulia when she heads back there. She, she takes his head back to them, carrying it in a bag. And when she shows it to the townspeople, she says, and these are her words, she says, as the Lord lives, who has protected me in the way I went, I swear that it was my face that seduced him to his destruction. Wow. Mm. <laughs> so she she totally admits that she's used her sexual allure in order to perpetrate the murder. But she's also insisting that God was protecting her all this time. So 
what we're left with is is a, a figure as who's presented as this fascinating mix of piety and dangerous sexuality. She's a sort of pious sexual woman killer, and that's just so kind of extraordinary. And she's holding both of them, and she's open about both of those those yeah. aspects to her, right? Yeah. As we were saying earlier about social understandings of women. They're expected to be pure and chaste and passive, but there's also that kind of lurking suspicion Mm. that women have this innate capacity for deception and violence because of their dangerous sexuality. And and Judith kind of wears both of those aspects, I think. Um, She meets both those expectations. So sure, she's the hero of this story and we're encouraged to understand her duplicity and her her violence is is almost justified. Mm. But I think we're also left slightly wary or slightly scared because she's reminding us about the power that women actually have if they're allowed to use it, that kind of dangerous, dangerous element to women. And I wonder if the people of Bethulia made a mental note to themselves to just... Watch their back in the future when <laughs> Judith was around. Yeah, watch their head. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure all the all the men of Bethulia were probably thinking or saying to themselves, you know, it's probably best if I don't invite Judith around for dinner anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> she wouldn't have been a, a popular dinner date companion. I don't no. Think. No, no. Although, mind you, it's it's also clear from the story that Judith's violence and her subversive sexuality are only temporary. Um, and it's it's ex- kind of acceptable only in the, the most urgent situation. Mm. So the story has kind of shown us how powerful she can be. Mm-hmm. But I also get the sense that she really can't be allowed to continue on unchecked. It's like the Assyrians said when they first saw Judith. A woman this beautiful has the power to beguile the whole world. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, Judith has saved the day, but... The story has to end, or kind of has to end, with her taking off her femme fatale outfit and her warrior outfit and returning to the safe confines of her sort of cloistered widowhood, wearing her widow's garb again. And, you know, at the end of the story, as you say, it's a very anticlimactic ending. We're, we're told that Judith remained on her estate for the rest of her life. And while many men wanted to marry her, and well, they were brave. <laughs> Not sure I believe that, actually. But yeah, she refused their offers and she chose to remain widowed and alone, just with her maid servants living with them. And I I wonder if we're being reassured here uh, by the narrator that, that Judith didn't have the opportunity to cause any more men to literally lose their heads. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, clearly she has a dodgy track record when it comes to men, oh, right? yeah, 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 definitely. But she's just she's such a fascinating and complex and often overlooked biblical character. Yeah, she really is. She's, she's it's yeah, it's an extraordinary story and she's just the most intriguing biblical character. Mm. Okay, so, so what do we take away from the story of Judith about women who kill? Um... I, I think that the, the story of Judith shows us that women who kill are fascinating because they transgress so many stereotypes about ideal femininity and about the ideal way to be a woman. But at the same time, her story also kind of confirms our worst fears about the power of women's sexuality to destroy even the strongest of men. So mm. she's both fascinating but terrifying at the same time. Yeah. 
And I think that's what I've taken away about the idea of women who kill more generally from her story. What about you? Yes, I mean, similar. For me, she she represents kind of the, the conflicting and contradictory standards that, that patriarchal societies hold for women. Mm-hmm. Um, her, her character gives insight into the nuances and complexities of navigating these gendered standards in ancient times in a way that will probably sound very familiar to contemporary women. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and, I mean, sure, we might not be decapitating Assyrian generals. no. <laughs> No, not all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But women live with the conflicting expectation that we are on one hand meant to be pure and chaste Mm. and passive and subservient and demure. But on the other hand, we're also irrepressibly sexual and dangerous and deviant and powerful. Yeah. So women have these these two faces. Um, Yeah. That's what makes us so intriguing. Yeah. (laughs) And dangerous. And And dangerous. dangerous. Okay, so if you were on the jury for Judith's murder trial, would you find her guilty or not guilty? Oh, oh, I think she's guilty. But I think that extenuating circumstances mean that she shouldn't be punished for her crime. Can I can I have it both ways? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she knew exactly what she was doing. She was intelligent. She was assertive. She was courageous. And she's cutthroat. Oh, yeah. She acted to save herself and her people. I mean, for me, she's badass and I love her. Oh yeah, I I love her too. Almost as much as Villanelle, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to disagree with you slightly. I I completely get your reasoning there, um, but I'm going to go with a not guilty verdict by reason of self-defense. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I I mean, I think Judith felt that she was doing what she had to do in order to survive, Mm. Uh, not only herself, but but also to save her townsfolk from certain death at the hands of the Assyrians. So sure, at that very moment when she beheads Olifernes, she wasn't in imminent danger because, you know, he was drunk and unconscious at the time. But what would have happened if she'd let him live? I mean, wouldn't he just have tried to rape her the next night when he sobered up? Yeah. You know, imagine if he'd found out the real reason that she was there, he would have likely sort of raped her and killed her. True. So... I think she's definitely getting a not guilty from me because she I feel that she had to make that preemptive strike while she had the chance because otherwise, you know, what what would have happened? Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree with your reasoning there. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so before we go, shall we share with listeners what we're listening to at the moment? Yes, well, as as part of the uh, the preparation for this episode, I actually listened to a really great podcast called Why Women Kill, which is presented by true crime writer Tori Telfer, and I think it's it's a kind of standalone series. I think there's about seven or eight episodes, and in each episode, Tori takes us through different kind of archetypes of mm. women who kill, including the bloodthirsty babe, the black widow. Uh, the woman who snaps and the jealous lover. Mm. So really good. And she gets a lot of kind of experts in to to talk about these different archetypes and, and talks about some particular figures throughout history who, who fit them really well. Now, I'm not sure what category Judith would fit into. Maybe the bloodthirsty babe. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, but anyway, I highly recommend the podcast. It's such uh, an enjoyable listen. Yes, you've put me onto that podcast and I'm mm. loving it. Such a great oh, yes. recommendation. Uh, so I really enjoyed the podcast 
uh, called The Thing About Pam, which came out in 2019, I think. Um, but it's a fantastic listen. Yes. It tells the story of convicted killer Pam, Pamela Hupp. I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but it's an absolutely brilliant six episode podcast. Yeah. It's an absolute must listen. Yeah, it's really, really, really good. Okay, so I hope our listeners have enjoyed our journey with Judith today and learning a bit more about her and, and talking about women who kill. And if you're interested in learning more, the resources we used for this episode will be listed on our show notes, which you'll find on our website, along with links to our social media accounts. But until next time, we're off to locate an Assyrian general. No, we'll sign yeah. off. <laughs> we'll sign yes. off and say goodbye. Yes, I'm sharpening my sword as we speak. <laughs> okay. Bye, you. everyone. Congratulations, you've made it to the end of another episode of the Bloody Bible Podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please let us know. You can contact us through our various social media accounts. But also please take the time to share about the podcast with your family and friends. Uh, the podcast is primarily shared through word of mouth. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please let other people know. The Bloody Bible podcast is supported by funding from the United Kingdom Arts and Humanities Research Council as part of the Shiloh Project Research Grant. Special thanks to Professor Johannes Stiebert at the University of Leeds who commissioned us to create the podcast. The podcast is produced by Carolyn Blythe, Emily Colgan and me, Richard Bonifant, who also recorded and edited each episode whilst apologising profusely on behalf of all men. Our music is Stalker by Alexis Ortiz Sofield, courtesy of Pixabay Music, and the podcast artwork was created by Sarah Lee West.